0: Welcome to the show. Tonight it's beefs with veganism. So, I had put the case for a vegan lifestyle earlier, but increasingly immersed in it, I found it to be like a religious belief system. Reading as I was only vegan posts and watching vegan videos, I became quite brainwashed into that reality tunnel, not wishing to encounter the other side of the story, or even accept there was one. All the cruel omnis and carnists must surely have put their fingers in their ears and buried their heads in the sand, like the ostriches they would happily eat. Or was it me that had? Is there another side to the debate? Or do the meat eaters not need one, as they are so well catered for as a vast smug majority of the population? Well it turns out there is far less anti-vegan information out there than vegan, and often lists of objections to veganism are simply posted as straw men for the vegans themselves to then demolish. Some entertaining anti-vegan rants can be found at reddit's group r anti-vegan slash. In the name of balance, let's take a look at some of what else remains, with some of my own wild ponderings interspersed. Vegan Betrayal by Mara Khan Her first point is no traditional culture has ever been vegan. Even in India, less than 40% are veggies, and almost none vegan. She feels we all need carny nutrients such as DHA. But the first part of the book actually makes as convincing a case for veganism as any Netflix documentary, interspersed with a quite sweet yet often sensual tale of her early life as a naive veggie yank travelling through Europe. But then the other side of the vegan story comes in, Associations with eating disorders, bone fractures, calcium deficiency, heart disease in some, increased platelet aggregation, low omega-3, more mental and neurological diseases, high homocysteine, low vitamin B12, low CLA and CoQ10, low iron, iodine, zinc, vitamins A and D3, selenium and protein. And new micronutrients only found in animal products are still being found. She points out it's impossible to banish all animal products from one's life, as they're often used in processing sugar and apple juice, provide the L-cysteine in bagels, are in paints, adhesives, fuels, plastics, crayons, hydraulic fuels in planes and cars, asphalt that is driven and cycled on, fertiliser and even cement blocks in houses. Travelling by vehicle, walking, just about any method of producing the things we need, kills endless creatures directly and indirectly. Medicines are another example. Even the strictest vegan is compromising and exploiting animal products in some way to have any sort of tolerable life. It's a matter of balance and most agree the bottom line is human lives do come first, or at least they live that way regardless of what their mouths are saying. The bleeding burger debates on Facebook were a classic to me. First that so many vegans seem to need meat substitutes as close to the real thing as possible, but to need a burger that looks like it's bleeding The psychology there is interesting. Then the arguments begin, with confusion between rival burgers. Are all ingredients vegan? Was the product tested on animals? Don't all American new foodstuffs have to be tested on animals? Do the companies selling them only otherwise sell vegan products? And so on. Probably all self-righteously typed on a smartphone made by a child exploited in a sweatshop. But hey, as long as you don't eat honey, that might irritate some bees, right? Admittedly, no vegan meats really cut the mustard, taste-wise. They'd have to be covered in mustard and all manner of garnishes to hide the grey cardboardiness. Any who would dare to try in vitro meat grown in labs? Corn being created from mould is scary enough, although the cocktail sausages are still Moorish. It does seem incongruous buying a vegan meal in Tesco, strolling past the meat aisle to do so if one is trying to be a purist. Wouldn't Tesco, by vegan standards, be a company complicit in mass murder? The futile attempts at purism, orthorexia nervosa, with an even more elite tier of raw food vegans, will surely lead to OCD, and a martyr's death of self-imposed starvation, whilst not moving in case any insects or perhaps bacteria are squashed. The judgment and contempt heaped upon those who are not quite 100% vegan compliant is often worse than that directed at unashamed carnists. The rules are tough for the most organised religions, the mindset of which are not a million miles off. Although the likes of Jesus, Buddha and Francis of Assisi did all apparently eat meat, if they existed. Gandhi admitted he couldn't give up milk and needed it for strength. Pythagoras advocated vegetarianism for some followers, but was extremely wary of beans, given their traditional comedic side effect. Well, Humans lack the enzymes to digest the raffinose and stachyose in them. Where is the line drawn with which species not to kill? The author gives examples of infesting ants and bed bugs. Is having pain receptors the same as capacity for suffering? What about microbes who flinch from a knife? Is it better to munch on a cricket than ruin the environment growing soybeans? And they have the vitamin A, B12, and essential amino acids the crickets that is. Cocoa, grains, nuts, seeds and dried fruit all end up with insect parts in them. Harvesting grains with giant machines kills countless billions of small animals and birds. Woodlands hacked down, wetlands drained and meadows destroyed to grow food with the disappearance of the animals and birds within. Many famous celebrity vegetarians, often quoted in fact, were believed to have eaten animal products for most and usually all of their lives, despite what they've said publicly, seemingly more were keen on the idea and being fashionable than living the reality. Then you get Angelina Jolie complaining her previous All Plants Diet nearly killed me. Some of the studies quoted as showing health benefits of veganism and vegetarianism are scrutinised in the book and found wanting, It's pointed out that many of the longest living cultures consume meat and fish. Things get a bit weird when she gets back to the USA in the story when the author stalks what vegans are eating for lunch, concluding it's generally loaded with carbs and sugar, with next to no protein or good fats. There are nine essential amino acids the body can't make itself. Plants all have deficient amounts of one or more. Lysine is particularly hard to come by, affecting protein synthesis. Even eating varied plant-based foods would mean needing large amounts of each, for example 15 cups of rice as even one component, each day. Even the author of the flawed China study, beloved of vegans, will agree. Not that the participants of that study were actually vegans anyway. Slightly unfortunate though that the main critic of that study is called minger. Eating animal protein provides tryptophan too so the sunshine chemical serotonin can be synthesized and cravings reduce, as well as lifting your mood. The appetite-suppressing and cognitive stimulation of caffeine is then discussed in the book, but also that it can interfere with the absorption of B12, iron and zinc, a potential problem for vegans in particular. A quote of Nietzsche's is mentioned with regards to the cyber rants between vegans and omnis. You have your way, I have my way. As for the correct way and the only way, It does not exist. There is a lot of pride and ego about. Not with me though, I'm the most modest genius in the world. Eventually in her journey she starts eating wild salmon in Alaska. It's like flying on jet fuel. Epiphany time. She points out that individual protein needs vary, and RDAs are only enough to prevent wasting away of muscle mass. In reality, it may be difficult to palatably take in enough as a vegan. The anti-nutrients in cereal grains and legumes are listed. Safe vegan food options are limited. Just wait for the plant paradox section later. The nutritional virtues of a tin of sardines are sung. Omnipresent soy is slated, likewise texturized vegetable protein. There's a lot of toxic hexane in the mix. The jury is definitely out on soy as to whether it's harmless or responsible for a myriad of health problems including hormone disruption and decreased libido, B12 blocking, dementia, especially tofu. You'll spend most of the remaining time left still in possession of your faculties pressing the water out of that rubbery stuff. And cancer, and that with likely iodine deficiency already. And Asians tend to ferment their soy unlike Westerners, who genetically modify it with as yet unknown consequences. And then there are the poisonous pesticides. The praise of the egg is then sung with its perfect amino acid profile, calcium, iron, vitamins A, B complex, D3, E, and the hard-to-find vitamin K2, choline, good for brain power, selenium, lutein, and zeaxanthin, good for eyes. It turns out vitamin K2 is a wonder nutrient found primarily in animal products, also known as activator X. It's great for cardiovascular health and preventing tooth decay, and is a crucial helper for processing vitamin D and calcium. Apart from eggs, Gouda is a Gouda sauce, also Kerrygold butter as the cows are grass-fed. Perhaps an omelette is in order. The best sauce, bizarrely, is emu oil. Lack of choline and amino acids taurine and creatinine for vegans could lead to a combination of brain fog and chatrinus. Carnitine and true vitamin A are also best found in animal sources. Carnosine blocks telomere shortening, extending life, and breaks down beta amyloid, a risk factor for Alzheimer's. Missing in a vegan diet. A diet higher in good fats and protein and lower in carbs is recommended. Real fat, including saturated, is good for you and helps with the absorption of nutrients and is calming. Fake, processed and trans fats, not so much. It's also tough boosting your long chain omega-3 to omega-6 ratio on a vegan diet. DHA is, after all, the primary fatty acid in human brains. A no-cholesterol diet will just stimulate the body to produce more itself. This can lead to people taking statins that reduce CoQ10 and can lead to heart failure. Cholesterol does lots of vital things in the body and is good for mood and sex hormone production. Carbs and insulin resistance may be the culprits in heart disease, in fact. Ayurvedic medicine actually recommends meat for some people to cure the condition deranged vata. Brahmins eat meat in Kashmir to keep their strength up in cold winters, An author John Nicholson cured his poor health from a lifetime of vegetarian eating by eating meat in his amusing book The Meat Fix, as have many previously sickly vegans. George Bernard Shaw reverted to meat eating to recover from smallpox. Buddha had a rethink when he was revived by a milk pudding and recommended meat broth as a cure. Similarly, the Dalai Lama had to go back to native yak meat for his health. There are many testimonials of ex-vegans in the book, and similar can be found on the blog http://letthemeatmeat.com. Foods rich in protein can also boost dopamine and feelings of pleasure. The perils of only eating raw food and the madness of fruitarianism and breatharianism follow. Celebrity breatharians are often call cheating, which would be funnier if it weren't for the fact that dim followers have died actually trying to do it properly. I wonder how many vegans also regularly cheat if they think nobody from their tribe will find out. Vitamin B12 stores will run out within a few years as vegans cannot easily get absorbable forms without taking a supplement. This could lead to depression and heart and brain damage. Our bodies are all individual and thanks to genetics will react in very different ways to diets and nutrition, including vegan, so some will do even worse on it than others. Some may desperately need the high purine proteins of animal origin. Some will still manage to thrive on a vegan diet, and even on a high-carb diet. Mara suggests mindfulness and listening to your body. Not your vegan friends, who may be all too ready to disown you if you become a heretic, like a gang of Jehovah's Witnesses disfellowshipping a three-thinker. Mara does find common ground once more with vegans in later chapters calling for the abolition of factory farming and urging us all to buy locally and live consciously with compassion. Now, the vegetarian myth by Leah Keith. It begins similarly to vegan betrayal, mentioning the deaths of animals, including the way to grow food crops, the smallest being less on the radar of vegans for the most part. Creatures always have to die so we can live. Nature is chock full of killing. She discusses the importance of topsoil, water tables, the downsides of agriculture, as well as factory farming. Her initial determination not to kill anything reached pleasingly maniacal lengths. Inevitably, Batharians and their mishaps get a mention. She demonstrates the ethical issues are far more complex than the typical arguments buzzing around. Perhaps too complex for my brain, the detail she gets into. But important points are enclosed within. And a passionate empathy for the intelligence and services of plants. I did find this strangely interesting. The best book on the subject there is a link to on Maestro Project's blog page that goes with this. Then we hear about good fats being better than high carbs and soy being bad for testosterone levels, messing with estrogen and the thyroid, and tofu dementia again, cancer, birth defects, the amount of processing and toxins released in manufacturing soy products. A thought-provoking read, complementing vegan betrayal, the latter though being clearer and more entertaining to me. Let's stick with entertaining and get back to the previously mentioned book, The Meat Fix. This entertaining football writer. So a lifetime of healthy eating. And illness, overweight, IBS, sky-high cholesterol and feeling dreadful on the low-sugar, low-fat, high-fiber, carb-rich, whole-grain, vegetable-based diet that's allegedly the sensible one. But bringing back meat, including red and saturated fats, really turned things around for him and had him feeling great. Even his eyesight improved and his libido returned. Forthright language is used throughout and quite right too. The journey to vegetarianism and back is set in his life story. Probably, in many ways, quite the opposite of Mara's from Vegan Betrayal, apart from the eventual results. His is a lot like my own childhood, once my family had reached Essex from Canada, via Scotland and Wales, so it resonated. Political correctness had not been invented in the 1970s, so foreign food was not really on the radar, much less vegetarians common or out in the open. An increase in prosperity seemed to lead to more sugar and carbohydrates and less walking. A wake-up call was his father dying from a heart attack at 65. At one point, he lives a life of organic, near self-sufficiency with his partner, a bump on the road being trying to euthanize a poorly chicken, leading to them embracing veganism. He admits to being a smug bastard at that time. This lifestyle choice was easier on moving to the US, where they began to chug down soya in of forms, but his health was beginning to fail. The IBS was heralded by a harrowing toilet episode. The doctors were typically clueless, yet still arrogant of course. His cholesterol was also found to be extremely high. As a bonus, he then developed hemorrhoids. Quite a graphic chapter in all. Cutting carbs and fat led to weight loss, but he still felt ill. His partner also had health conditions and after fruitless trips to specialists, suddenly decided to eat meat. And in trepidation, they both decided to do it. Somewhat bizarrely, rather than bacon as you might expect, he went back to liver first based on liking it in his youth. Personally, I hated it, and used to hide it in my pocket when served. His partner had a burger. Rip ice steak later that day was more to their liking, taste-wise. It gave him a deep sense of satisfaction on all levels. There was then no stopping them, and fat was definitely back on the menu too. The IBS and headaches vanished, as did body fat. Improvements came swiftly in sleep, mood, eyesight, and libido. But, angry at feeling he'd been deceived in the meat-free years, he started to research. He discovered processed soy, with its trypsin inhibitors, could well have been one of the culprits, likewise too much copper and not enough quality protein and zinc. Upping the ratio of omega-3 to omega-6 was a big help, as was eating complete proteins. I'd have to agree that most doctors know next to nothing about real nutrition. Admittedly, I may have missed that class in medical school, alongside many others. I had some drinking to do, but if it existed, I assume it would have towed to the whole grain and low-fat party line. Any research findings that are blurted out on Facebook and The Daily Fail must be looked at further, with a critical eye, even if they conveniently back up something you hope is true occasionally. The spat between Gillian McKeith and Ben Goldacre is entertainingly revisited. The book is firmly in the camp of saturated fat and cholesterol not being the villains, the villains rather being Ansel Keys, statins, vegetable oils, processed foods, and those authorities claiming dietary cholesterol can affect your body cholesterol levels. When I glance at the headlines on the scaremongering tabloids whilst filling the car with petrol, they seem to fluctuate between statins being miraculous and them being evil, amongst the mortgage rates and Russia doom. There's a whole chapter on the perils of processed soya, with possible links to obesity, gastrointestinal complaints, hypothyroidism and malabsorption of nutrients, and rainforests with their wildlife being flattened to grow it. The fact factory-farmed animals are fed it is a solid reason to go grass-fed. How can eating fake food, usually GMO corrupted do you any good? The merits of low carb for weight loss and even improving eyesight are discussed. The writer eats a similar level to that recommended in the Primal Blueprint book by Mark Sisson of 50 to 75 grams of carbs, up to 100 grams on some days. Bread, including whole wheat bread, is slated, as were potatoes, but the strange thing is If you're satisfied with a good amount of fat in your diet, you soon forget the starchy stuff and are far better off without all the blood sugar highs and lows. Speaking of which, the sugar has to go, whether the white stuff in snacks or even sugary fruits and fruit juices. The potential toxic and even weight gaining effects of artificial sweetness follows. Another sacred cow off to the slaughterhouse is where the salt is really so bad for you. Then the science behind five-a-day fruit and vegetable advice takes a pounding. And then there are the depleted nutrients, genetic modifications and pesticides residues on your fruit and veg these days. It's as if everything the government and NHS tell us might be, well, the opposite of what's really healthy. As to what you should eat and drink, where possible, organic and free-range, low-carb, quality animal proteins including meat, eggs and fats nuts and unpasteurized dairy, organic veg, berries, wild fish, water, green tea, white spirits, dry white wine and olive oil are especially recommended. As is the book The Meat Fix, by me. Now back to those plants. Vascular plants are believed to have pain receptors, make choices and have memory. Trees can communicate electrically via an internet of fungus and will nourish the tree stumps left of other trees. Plants can chemically signal to each other, know when they're being eaten, and react offensively. Eastern philosophy has always seen them as sentient. They can perform biological light computations. They want to live rather than be consumed. Just because a human's had an accident and is labelled a vegetable in hospital doesn't mean people get their knives and forks out to eat them. Is eating plants, whether they're sentient or not, as good for you as it's claimed? The plant paradox, the hidden dangers in healthy foods that cause disease and weight gain, by Stephen Gundry, would suggest not. Many plants are packed with lectins to defend themselves. Seeds are the plant's babies that understandably they do not intend to be eaten until they have a protective coating, for example when a fruit is ripe and will survive a trip through a digestive tract. Naked seeds, including whole grains, with their WGA, will have a variety of chemicals to damage the bodies of predators like us. Lectins, of which gluten is just one example, are sticky proteins that can cause mayhem in the body, including aiding viruses and bacteria in their naughtiness and causing weight gain. They can penetrate the gut wall and confuse the immune system and disrupt cellular communication. A fine celebrity name drop was the author bringing guru Tony Robbins back from the dead with his program. He also helped Usher lose weight. There's some great gut bacteria talk reminiscent of G's for guts in my diet dictionary. After all the doom, the doc then finally introduces the Plant Paradox programme. It's more about what not to eat. The yes and no lists can be downloaded from the internet. The link is on the page that goes with this show. The bad guys are not just plants, and it's not just about lectins, but include fruit and vegetables with seeds, courgettes, cucumbers, tomatoes, pickles, peppers, aubergines, corn, soy beans, and whole grains sugar, sweeteners, farm-raised poultry, peanuts, cashews, non-grass-fed red meat, milk and dairy from the wrong type of cows. There is constant reassurance to vegetarians and vegans they can be facilitated, mainly by pressure cooking legumes or seedy vegetables to eliminate the lectins. Fish oil, especially DHA rich and vitamin D are recommended, many other more obscure supplements too, and blends concocted by Stephen Gundry's company but you might just end up bankrupt and rattling if you took them all. My favourite line in the book is, Remember, plants don't like you. Then I thought I would read The Essential Handbook to Lectin by Evelyn Carmichael. Again, it's about the plants defending themselves from predators including us. A lot of emphasis on preparation and cooking to reduce lectin content. On the same page as Plant Paradox, just fewer of them. Another book, The Big Fat Surprise, Why Butter, Meat and Cheese Belong in a Healthy Diet, is a typical tome in the tradition of Atkins and Taubes, slating low-fat and Mediterranean diets and hailing the goodness of saturated fat, by Nina Techholtz. Low-carb diets go back to the days of William Banting in 1863. Atkins famously gave 20 grams of carbs a day as a maximum in the induction phase, these days, as mentioned, books such as the Primal Blueprint give a more palatable range of 50 to 100 grams of carbs daily as being conducive still to weight loss. Taubs and Krauss have worked to rehabilitate healthy fats and even cholesterol and explain why weight control is not just about calories in and calories out. It's not easy going low carb and getting healthy fats on a vegan diet, although there is a chapter in the Fine Slow Carb Secrets 2 book by My Good Self. If you want to also eliminate things like grains, beans, and murderous lectiny fruit and seedy veg as a vegan, as mentioned in the Plant Paradox, then you're really running out of options. Although the Plant Paradox also recommends drastically cutting down the amount of animal protein consumed and gives vegetarian and vegan options of all of the recipes. But I am paranoid about what those damn plants are up to now. Good night.